Thank you for tuning in to A Guest at the Past 1892, the Reverend Charles Henry Parkhurst edition. So you might remember a special episode I released on Most Notorious uh, a year or two ago called Midnight Potboiler. Uh, it's no longer there. Uh, I removed it from the Most Notorious lineup, but I will rehash for you here because the events covered in the book that the episode was based on took place in February, March, and April of 1892. The book was called The Doctor and the Devil, or Midnight Adventures of Dr. Parkhurst, written by a private detective named Charles Gardner. The eminent Charles Parkhurst, born in 1842 in Massachusetts, was a minister who served at Madison Square Presbyterian Church in New York City. He was a well-intentioned Christian progressive. Like many clergymen of the era, he tackled social issues from his pulpit, but his pulpit was an especially powerful one, and when he took on institutions like Tammany Hall and railed against graft and corruption, newspapers took notice. His sermons were published. The city was called out into the open. Parkhurst also tackled vice. And on February 14, 1892, he gave a blistering sermon, claiming that New York is a very hotbed of knavery, debauchery, and bestiality, where there is not a young man so noble, nor a young girl so pure, as not to be in a degree infected by the fetid contamination. Strong words, and words that shook up not only his congregation, but others who wanted to clean up these vice districts. A municipal grand jury was called, partly in reaction to his powerful sermon. But they didn't have enough information, and they needed evidence that things were truly as bad as Parkhurst claimed they were. So not one to shirk from responsibility. The Reverend Parkhurst decided to hire someone to introduce him to some of these places, so he could see firsthand these activities he'd only heard from secondhand sources up to this point. And that's where Charles Gardner came in, a no-nonsense private detective who kept a foot in each of these worlds, a perfect escort to show Parkhurst what real deprivation looked like. To Parkhurst's later chagrin, and my eternal thankfulness, Gardner would end up capitalizing on this partnership by writing a book detailing their adventures together, which I will be reading from for you momentarily. But a bit about the sport of slumming first. Slumming was a highly popular pastime in 1892. Well-to-do people, usually young men, which they would call sports. These men would travel around to the dingiest dives in the city and derive great entertainment by rubbing elbows with those on the bottom-most societal rung. I will give Gardner a bit of credit. He took his job very seriously and didn't throw Parkhurst into the deep end right off the bat. It was a gradual attack on his senses over the course of weeks. Parkhurst, by the way, decided to bring along a friend, a member of the church named John Irving, 
to experience the wickedness with him. Also, Gardner did make an effort to scrub both men up so they wouldn't draw too much unwanted attention to themselves. He gave them some ragged, ripped, and dirty jackets, trousers, and hats, and even rubbed laundry soap onto the reverend's well-coiffed head of hair to make him look, in his words, tough. He rubbed and scrubbed until they were passably shoddy-looking. Apologies in advance if any of the language offends you, and it might. The entire book, by the way, is free to read on Google Books if you would like to explore the rest of the chapters. Today I will be reading chapter 10 for you, which includes the most memorable and talked-about visit by Parkhurst and Gardner from the book, which took place on the evening of Friday, March 11th, 1892, coincidentally on the very same day that the first public basketball game was ever played at a YMCA in Springfield, Massachusetts. It was a game between teachers and students of the International YMCA Training School, now Springfield College, using a soccer ball and two peach baskets. The students defeated the teachers, by the way, five to one. Anyway, keep in mind that the New York City of 1892 was far smaller than it is today. Then it included only Manhattan and parts of the Bronx and Westchester. And it was in Manhattan that Parkhurst and company would roam through those infamous few weeks. Anyway, let's get to the story. Let's dive into chapter 10 of The Doctor and the Devil. The 15th police precinct of the city of New York, years ago, was the real tenderloin precinct of the metropolis. But so far as its fashionable character is concerned, it has lost its prestige, and few of the old-time panel games, badger workers, confidence games, and pastimes of that ilk existed when Dr. Parkhurst and I visited it. The 15th Precinct is bounded by the south side of 14th Street, west side of 6th Avenue, Carmine Street to Bleecker, north side of Bleecker Street to the Bowery, and the west side of the Bowery and 4th Avenue back to 14th Street. Most of the vice in this big precinct is to be found in the settlements in it known as Coontown and Frenchtown. That is, these particular districts people live who are of the colored and French races. The colored settlement occupies a large portion of Sullivan, Thompson, and McDougall streets, while the French Quarter is principally confined to Wooster, Green, West 3rd, and West 4th streets. The upper part of the precinct, too, holds a number of pharaoh banks and houses of assignation. As a quick aside, houses of assignation or brothels, all of which are run on money-making principles, of which addition, division, and silence is no mean part. I had shown Dr. Parkhurst the depths of common vice and the unique portion of it as shown in Chinatown and the Italian quarters and now I proposed to show him something of the worst vice that New York holds, 
so I led the way to the Golden Rule Pleasure Club. This dive was then situated in West 3rd Street, in a four-story brick house. We entered the resort through the basement door, and as we did so, a buzzer, or automatic alarm, gave the proprietors of the house information that we were in the place. The proprietress, a woman known as Scotch Ann, greeted us. She was quite a pretty woman, tall, black-haired, and of graceful form. Good evening, she said smilingly. Won't you come in? The basement was fitted up into little rooms by means of cheap partitions, which ran to the top of the ceiling from the floor. Each room contained a table and a couple of chairs for the use of customers of the vile den. In each room sat a youth whose face was painted, eyebrows blackened, and whose airs were those of a young girl. Each person talked in a high falsetto voice and called the others by women's names. I explained. The doctor instantly turned on his heel and fled from the house at top speed. Why, I wouldn't stay in that house, he gasped, for all the money in the world. The doctor saw worse sights later, but his nerves had become more accustomed then to scenes even more degrading. We hurried along until we reached a house well over on West 3rd Street. The house was two stories in height and was reached by a flight of stone steps. When we entered the house, we found ranged along in a file in the hallway six young women. They were all pretty, but were painted and powdered and dissipated looking. Each girl wore but a single garment over a pair of stockings and shoes. This garment was in the form of a sleeveless Mother Hubbard, cut low in the neck. All spoke broken English, as they were of French birth. The doctor began talking with them in their own language, and they replied to him merrily. I do not speak French, but whatever the doctor said seemed to please the women immensely, as they laughed and chatted like a lot of magpies. We were ushered into a neatly furnished parlor. In the moment the doctor sat down in a big armchair, one of the girls, the plumpest and best-looking in the lot, sat down on the doctor's lap. He gave me an appealing glance, and I saw that he wanted to be relieved of his burden. So I called the girl over to me. She came quickly and urged me to buy a round of drinks. Of course, I did so, and we all drank beer, the doctor having told me when we started out that he preferred to drink beer if possible, because the effects of it were not so harmful, he found, on the following day. We left there without a long delay. Our next visit, since then, became a very famous one, for it was paid to the resort kept by Marie Andrea. Where was enacted a performance which has become historic under the name of Dr. Parkhurst's Circus. The house of Marie, Andrea, was then situated on West 4th Street. 
It was one of the most infamous resorts in New York City at the time the doctor and I visited it. I knew this fact, and so I insisted that it would be as well for us to be accompanied by one other witness besides the doctor and Irving. So I summoned William H. Howes, a private detective in my personal employ, to go along with us. Marie Andrea's house was a three-story brick structure with a basement. As we passed up the steps to it, we heard a girl whistle to us from an upper window. In fact, this was a favorite manner of attracting custom to this house. The unfortunate women who lived in it were stationed at one of the open windows both day and night and used to attract the attention of men passing by whistling to them. A big policeman was standing right at the steps as we ascended them, swinging his club and apparently not caring whether there was vice about him or not. When I rang the doorbell, Marie Andrea herself answered it. Are you all together? She queried as she saw four forms before her. Yes, I replied. All right, she returned. Come in. She motioned us toward a parlor at the left of the door, and as soon as we entered it, she asked us if we had come to the place to see a French circus. How much is it going to cost? I asked. Five dollars each, she replied. I thought that the Society of the Prevention of Crime had spent quite enough money that night so told the woman that we would not pay more than $4 each. Well, she said, all right. At a signal from her, two servants hurried into the room and stretched a yellowish crash cloth over the carpet. Then, with a rustle of drapery, or lack of it, possibly, a bevy of young and decidedly pretty French women trooped into the room. All of the women wore the Mother Hubbard costume of silk and gay satin with stockings and shoes. Pick out your ladies, said Marie Andrea, adding further information. I waited for the doctor to take his pick first. In a dazed sort of way, he pointed to a thin, scrawny, and consumptive-looking girl which she turned out to be one of the most active performers in the subsequent circus. Then Irving, Howes, and I made a pick. The women, accompanied by those we had not selected, hastily left the room, and almost immediately those we had picked out returned. I cannot tell you what happened. It is a part of the history of the criminal courts of New York, and no matter what you may think personally about Dr. Parkhurst's society, you would agree with me that it has done a splendid work in clearing New York of this place alone if you had seen what I did, what Dr. Parkhurst saw in that infamous home of vileness. And the doctor never quivered. I must say I admired his nerve. Here are the extracts from the affidavits which I hold about these cases. They will give you an inkling of the unspeakable horror of it all. Charles W. Gardner of number 207 West 18th Street, being duly sworn 
deposes and says that on the 11th day of March, 1892, at the city and county of New York, in company with Charles H. Parkhurst, William H. Howes, and John L. Irving, visited the house number blank, West 4th Street in said city, kept and owned by one Jane Doe, real name unknown, that they were solicited blank, 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 that said Jane Doe sold them a certain malt liquor, namely lager, and solicited her customers to pay her $16, for which she would show them four women, blank, 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 that they had paid the said Jane Doe the sum of $16 in lawful money and witnessed blank, blank, blank in their presence as direction of said Jane Doe, who received money from them. The doctor was not affected. After the debasing performance, the women bowed and smiled like a successful lot of ballet dancers, not even caring for the expression of non-appreciation of their efforts, which our faces must have borne. They left the room on a signal from the Andrea-like automata. It did not apparently affect the doctor, as it did me, merely to nausea, for he looked through his glasses all during the circus and did not even make a murmur of protest. He sat in a corner with his feet curled under his chair and blandly smiled. After the circus, I ordered drinks for the party. The girls were thirsty after their performance and they eagerly drank beer. So did we all. Dr. Parkhurst signaled that it was time to leave and despite appeals, we flied out of the house. What did you think of it, doctor? I asked. Think of it, he replied. It was the most brutal, most horrible exhibition that I have ever saw in my life. I remember reading once a thrilling chapter written by a celebrated American novelist and latter-day historian about a man who was confined to the city of Vicksburg during its tremendous war experiences. Shot and shell were falling through the city like hail. Men were being killed by the dozens, and this man kept a diary of all of these fearful events. On the first day of the terrible bombardment of the fated city, he had written 18 close pages in his diary. The second day, five. The third, one, loosely written. The fourth, three or four lines a line or two on the fifth and sixth days. Seventh day, diary abandoned. Life in terrific Vicksburg having now become commonplace and a matter of course. So it was now with Dr. Parkhurst. Sights in these torrid, crime-infested haunts of New York had become commonplace to him. He was rapidly getting past the shocking point. So the most sordid details of that French circus were skipped in Gardner's description of the events of that night. So I do want to read a bit of chapter 11 for you, because he does go into the details a little bit more explicitly. Let, let's continue on with chapter 11 and see what happens to this unmerry band of adventurers. Strange as it may seem to you, 
all of this tour was not a pleasure to me. To the outside world, I have been represented as a man who rather enjoyed the fun of taking a prominent clergyman around on a slumming tour. But I did not. In the first place, not only did I have to keep the doctor from trouble, but he was a very hard man to satisfy. Show me something worse, was his constant cry. He really went at his slumming work as if his heart was in his tour. And aside from this craving for seeing everything to be seen, there was the question of the attitude of the police to be considered by me. Of course, the police learned that Dr. Parkhurst was at work on a new line of business shortly after we had started out on our tour. They knew, too, that the doctor had made visits to certain disorderly houses. As a result, I feared traps would be laid to raid houses in which the doctor and our party would be, and the utmost care had to be taken to elude the police, who were rushing around after us, right merrily. One day a young man called on the doctor and said that he was greatly interested in the work of purging the city of its criminal classes. I will give all my spare time to the society and will not charge it a cent. Here are a half dozen places which you ought to visit. The doctor blandly smiled and thanked the young man. I easily found out that the visitor was a police headquarters detective and you can rest assured that we did not visit the resorts furnished by this self-sacrificing young man. Our arrangement prior to visiting Hattie Adams Place at number 29 and 31 East 27th Street was to meet at the Hoffman House and then start in for our journey. I had no intention of visiting her place, but had marked the French Madams in West 31st Street where I had arranged for an entertainment as the scene for this night of ribald amusement. Fate, however, and incidentally, the police, saved the French madam. I reached the Hoffman house a little ahead of time and found Irving there, but not the doctor. So while I was awaiting the arrival of Dr. Parkhurst, I suddenly noticed that a couple of men were watching me. I did not appear to notice the fact, but walked around, finally leaving the hotel with Irving by its side entrance. The mysterious strangers followed us. Ah, my bold detectives, I said to myself. I think I will give you a run for your money. I hurried to the 28th Street Station of the 6th Avenue Elevated Railroad, taking care not to tell my scheme to Irving. We bought tickets and jumped on a car, closely followed by the detectives, who, however, took a car just behind the one we boarded. Irving and I waited a moment until the train started. Then I slammed open the gate amid a howl of protest from the elevated rail guard, and as the train was moving, left it along with Irving, while our detective friends hurried uptown. I sent Irving over to Dr. Parkhurst's house to tell the doctor to meet us in an hour at the St. James Hotel instead of the Hoffman House. Meanwhile, Irving and I went to Johnson's Colored Dance House in West 27th Street, 
where the lost of the colored and white races nightly congregate. The den was on the ground floor of a house which once had been an aristocrat's home. A bar was doing a thriving business. Fifteen and sixteen-year-old white girls were dancing about with coons to the strains of a waltz, played by an orchestra composed of a piano, harp, violin, and piccolo. Colored girls of tender years danced with white men, too. And as all danced in a lascivious way, the scene was a startling one. After spending a few moments in this place, Irving went to the St. James Hotel, where he found the doctor awaiting him. And I, with another man, called on the festive Hattie and made arrangements for the show. Then I went after the doctor and Irving. It was about 11.30 o'clock at night when we reached the place, and we were met in the hall of the house by Hattie Adams herself, a scraggy, thin little woman with hay-colored hair and colorless light eyes. She led the way to a rear parlor, and then she called seven or eight young women into it. Dr. Parkhurst sat near the door and smiled when the girls came in. This is a rather bright company, he said blandly. He talked, you see, just about in the manner in which he would speak to a Sunday school full of young ladies, not knowing any worse. I arranged for the subsequent dance of nature, as it was called by Hattie Adams, of five girls at a cost of $15, or $3 for each gymnast dancer. Each girl was dressed in the usual garb of a Mother Hubbard gown, so fashionable in the circles we were in. The story of the disrobing has been told in court and need not be reproduced here. I meanwhile blindfolded the professor as the broken-down musician who sat in the parlor to furnish the music was called, as the girls refused to dance before him. Then the five women, to a lively jig played by the professor, danced the can-can. Hold up your hat, shouted one of the girls, a tall blonde. I grasped the doctor's black derby hat and held it up. The girl measured the distance with her eyes. I held the hat about six feet from the floor, then gave a single high kick, and amid applause sent the hat spinning away as I could not dance, and the doctor, of course, would not if he could. Irving was forced to do the dancing for the visitors. It was a unique sight to see a young man in a business suit dancing in that company. Then came the celebrated leapfrog episode, in which I was the frog and the others jumped over me. The doctor sat in the corner with an unmoved face through it all, watching us and slowly sipping at a glass of beer. Hattie Adams was quite anxious to find out who Dr. Parkhurst was. I told her that he was from the West and was a gay boy. I probably don't have to tell you that a, a gay boy in 1892 does not have the same connotation as it does today. Then Hattie tried to pull Dr. Parkhurst's whiskers 
what the doctor straightened out with such an air of dignity that she did not attempt any further familiarities. Immediately after the dance was over, the girls left the room and we left the house after drinking some beer. Come again, said Hattie Adams, smilingly as we left. I concluded that it was not safe for the doctor to engage further that night in the pastime of devil chasing. He agreed with me when I related how narrowly we escaped going into and being arrested in the French madam's house. I think though, said the doctor, that you and Irving had better continue. So with our party reduced to two of the original persons, we started out on this long journey among the most dissipated. We continued our quest. And the adventures continued on. So, there were mixed reactions to Parkhurst's adventures into the dark underbelly of New York's Tenderloin District. Throughout the spring of 1892, from March to April to May, snippets of his slumming trips reached the ears and eyes of New Yorkers. While some found the details to be eye-opening and important in exposing crime, others found him a little disingenuous. Here was a supposedly respectable pastor of a major New York church going around lying about his identity and paying to consume and watch sinful products. Dr. Parkhurst, however, stuck to his guns, and on May 15th, New York's Democrat and Chronicle reported that he had thanked his congregation for their support in his recent efforts to unmask vice. Impervious to criticism and talk, he said, they have supported me and encouraged me, and this loyalty has been of great comfort. And as for his efforts, well, his expedition became almost legendary and a turning point in the political battle between the progressive movement and Tammany Democrats. The Lexow Committee was created, partly on the strength of his first-hand accounts. This was a state commission that went deep into exposing police corruption. The ensuing scandals led to the 1894 election of William Strong as mayor. It was a complete repudiation of the Tammany political forces. William Strong accomplished many things during his three-year term, including establishing the New York City Board of Education, building parks, and appointing Theodore Roosevelt as police commissioner in 1894. Roosevelt, of course, rooted out police corruption and dramatically reformed the entire police department. As for Charles Gardner, he ended up publishing this book without the approval of Dr. Parkhurst. They, they were shaky friends to begin with, but whatever grudging respect Parkhurst might have had for the resourceful Gardner, it likely ended when he turned their escapades into a money-making venture. This ends another episode of A Gast at the Past 1892. We'll talk to you soon. Until next time.